This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be talking about a fascinating book published by Oxford University Press titled Backdoor Lawmaking, Evading Obstacles in the US Congress. This book takes us really quite far behind the scenes, kind of sometimes so far behind the scenes it seems like Congress doesn't want us to be there, to figure out how members of the United States Congress use the federal bureaucracy instead of policymaking as a way to do policymaking rather than through the more traditional how a bill becomes a law process that some of us might have learnt in school. This is obviously an interesting book and a really important book for understanding how American politics actually works. So I'm very pleased to have the author of the book, Dr. Melinda Ritchie, with us to tell us all about it. Melinda, thank you so much for being here. Oh, sure. And thank you so much for having me, Miranda. I'm very pleased to. Um, Before we get into all back doors into Congress, could you please introduce yourself a little bit and explain why this book? Um, Yes. So my name is Melinda Ritchie, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at The Ohio State University. Uh, My PhD is from the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign, and is also in political science. Uh, So I developed the book from my dissertation research, and the idea emerged from a sort of disconnect between what I was learning in my graduate seminars and my doctoral program and what I had observed during my previous professional experience as um, I was a Hill staffer, so a legislative staffer for a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. And in my seminars, I was learning about what the scholarly literature had to say about how members of Congress pursue their policy agendas. And that focus was on what we usually think of, I think. So how members of Congress vote on bills and when they introduce their co-sponsor bills, what they do in their committees. And what I realized was that the scholarly literature seemed to be overlooking a strategy that I had witnessed as a Hill staffer And that was when members of Congress try to shape policy outcomes by urging the agencies that make up the federal bureaucracy to take action rather than by pursuing legislative action in Congress. Great. Thank you for that introduction. Um, That allows us then to start getting into, obviously, the book. And I think the key place to start is with the term back-channel policymaking. So can you tell us what you mean by this and maybe walk us through an example so we sort of have an idea of what this is in practice? 
Sure. So first, it's important to set the stage with a fact that I think is surprising to many people, maybe even some congressional scholars. And that is that a majority of U.S. law is now made by federal agencies rather than by congressional statute. Uh, some scholars even say agencies is making up to uh, 90% of U.S. law. Um, so how is that possible? So Congress over time has increasingly delegated policymaking authority to agencies for a number of reasons. One big one is that agencies often have more expertise and capacity than Congress. And actually, a lot has been said recently about the decline in Congress's capacity to fulfill its Article I res responsibilities. So there's been uh, articles and books even written about this decline in congressional capacity in terms of a shortage of staff and high turnover rate among staff, uh, the increase in demand on members of Congress and their staff from constituents and uh, due to an increase in policy complexity. Uh, members of Congress have also been raising these concerns themselves about the capacity issues in Congress. So the House's Select Committee on the Modernization of Congress wrote about uh, these capacity issues um, in their report. So things having to do with uh, retention issues of quality staffers. Um, and very recently, there's actually been a rash of retirements in Congress, my former boss included. I think there's been maybe 30 to 40 um, retirement announcements even within the last couple of months. And several of the retiring members have complained about the difficulty of getting anything done in Congress. They've been talking more about gridlock related to partisanship and polarization, but whether it's capacity issues or ideological gridlock, uh, there is a clear sense that lawmakers are struggling to advance their policy priorities in Congress. I mean, the U.S. House came to a literal standstill for three weeks in October after Kevin McCarthy was ousted from the speakership. Uh, so Congress as an institution has struggled with gridlock, um, but individual rank and file legislators have really felt the brunt of it. Um, there's actually this great scholar, this um, uh, professor, James Curry, so he's a professor at University of Utah, has a fantastic book called Legislating in the Dark that talks about the centralization of power under leadership and how rank and file legislators are often shut out of influencing policy. So, um, so this brings us to my argument, and that is that these frustrated members of Congress are turning to the federal bureaucracy. And the, and the federal bureaucracy, as I said, now makes a majority of law uh, to accomplish policy objectives that they would have a hard time accomplishing through the legislative process. Uh, and I use this term, back-channel policymaking, to refer to the strategy members of Congress use in, to influence policy outside of the legislative process. Specifically, members of Congress are using their direct interactions with agencies. So like, for instance, when they call up an agency head on the phone or send an email um, to urge or in some cases even pressure agencies to take action on a policy objective. And uh, agencies, for their part, have an incentive to try to do what the member of Congress wants because Congress controls the agency's budgets. And they can also retaliate in other ways, like demanding oversight or holding up nominees in the Senate if the agency doesn't do what the member of Congress requests. Um, and agencies actually have several tools at their disposal to try to assist a, with a lawmaker's policy goals. So there's what's known as rulemaking, which is a formal process that agencies use to make policy. Um, there's also informal and also uh, less visible ways that agencies can make policy. Um, these informal ways include what's called guidance or guidance documents. 
Agencies can also use prosecutorial discretion. Uh, agencies can delay the implementation of a law if opponents of the law in Congress continue to try to, to fight its implementation. Uh, so, for instance, the Real ID Act was passed in 2005. Uh, and the Real ID Act, uh, it did a number of things, but a major one was that it banned people from boarding commercial airlines using just their driver's license unless the driver's license was Real ID compliant. Uh, so the Real ID Act, I should say, it, it could not have passed on its own. It could not have passed as a standalone bill. It didn't have enough support in Congress to pass on its own. But it was stuck into a tsunami relief bill that did pass uh, and there was substantial opposition to Real ID, even from powerful members of Congress who would have otherwise had a lot of influence over the legislation, like senior members of the Homeland Security Committee, for example. Um, but because of the procedure leadership used, those members didn't have as much influence as they otherwise would. So leadership essentially steamrolled it through. Um, but after Real ID became law, I can see in the records that I use in my book that several prominent members of Congress, like, for instance, Senator Joe Lieberman, who was chair of the Homeland Security Committee, contacted the Secretary of Homeland Security and asked her uh, basically not to implement Real ID or to delay implementation. Um, and to this day, Real ID has still have not been fully implemented. People can still board commercial airlines with their driver's license, even if it's not Real ID compliant. Uh, to give you another example, so this was an example that I used in the opening of um, the book, Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, representative or senator representing Minnesota, wanted to try to get the gray wolf removed from the endangered species list. Rather than introduce legislation, though, she first contacted the Fish and Wildlife Service to urge the agency to delist the wolf using administrative procedures. And that's what the Fish and Wildlife Service did. Uh, it delisted the gray wolf. And we actually have court documents. So these are available because the Humane Society later sued the Fish and Wildlife Service over the delisting. Um, and in these court documents, they reference emails between the agency personnel. Um, so internal agency emails between agency personnel debating whether to delist the wolf. And they even talk about the commitment that was made to Senator Klobuchar as a motivation for moving forward with the delisting. Um, another prominent example, though most people uh, probably don't know the whole story, is the DREAM Act. So the DREAM Act was legislation that was supposed to protect childhood arrivals to the US, um, but it never had enough support to, to pass Congress and never became law. There was, as some folks might know, there was an executive order issued by President Obama, commonly known as DACA, but what a lot of people don't know is that even before DACA, even before the executive order, the Department of Homeland Security had guidance or policies to protect childhood arrivals. And I can see from my data, from the records that I use in my book, that members of Congress were contacting the Department of Homeland Security, even while the DREAM Act was struggling to pass Congress. Uh, they were asking the agency, asking the secretary to protect childhood arrivals. So it's another example of members of Congress going to agencies with their policy objectives when those objectives are failing within the, the legislative process. Um, I use the term back channel because while members of Congress can make their communications with agencies public if they choose to, the interactions between members of Congress and agencies actually not easily accessible the same way their voting records or bill sponsorship are. So members of Congress can engage 
uh, in this policymaking strategy largely outside of the public eye. Um, now, most of the time, this might not be that big of a deal or, or that major of a concern if members of Congress are advocating for their constituencies the same way they would on the House or Senate floor. But if members of Congress are representing interests, perhaps business organizations, for example, that they don't want the public to know about, then it becomes more concerning. Absolutely, um, especially the public record side of things. But obviously, from that very helpful uh, answer, we do have records, or more importantly, you have them, and you've talked about them in the book. So given that these um, interactions are less public, how did you collect data for this book? What were some of the challenges and how did you overcome them? Sure, yes. And the data I collected is a big part of uh, the book precisely because it's not easy to access. Um, So I collected the data by making several Freedom of Information Act, uh, also known as FOIA requests. Um, And now this is an interesting thing that I talk more about in the book, that when Congress passed the Freedom of Information Act, it made sure that it didn't apply to Congress. Only the executive branch is subject to FOIA. So I wouldn't be able to make FOIA requests to Congress in order to get congressional documents. But once a congressional document is in the hands of an agency, so like when a member of Congress sends a letter or an email to an agency, for example, uh, it then becomes an agency record and is then subject to FOIA. Um, Or if an agency takes notes or records interactions, like a phone call or a meeting with a member of Congress, those notes or records are subject to FOIA. So that's how I was able to get the records I needed to construct my data set. I requested the logs that agencies keep for their internal use to keep track of their communications with congressional offices. And these logs include um, details about uh, the letters or emails they received from congressional offices, the phone calls and meetings. Um, So that's how I constructed my data set. Um, And I should mention, too, that after I received the records I needed, there was actually an attempt made by a bipartisan group of members of Congress to try to stop agencies from releasing documents sent to the agency by Congress once they realized that agencies were releasing them in response to FOIA requests. So Congress clearly does not want their communications with agencies to be subject uh, to FOIA. And I should mention that uh, that many people who have made FOIA requests will tell you that the process can be very slow and difficult. Um, and that, that's not always the case. There were some agencies that sent me the documents I requested, you know, in a timely manner and didn't try to fight beyond fee waivers. Uh, and I should say that I'm very grateful to those FOIA officers. And in some cases, it was actually government contractors who um, deal with the FOIA, uh, FOIA cases. But in other cases, I had to call FOIA officers multiple times. Some tried to deny me fee waivers, and I had to file appeals. Uh, Agencies even have strategies that they use to try to avoid or delay fulfilling FOIA requests, um, like what's known as still interested letters. So they'll send you a letter um, asking if you're still interested. And if you don't respond to that letter within a certain period of time, they close the case. Uh, So I think uh, I still actually have... Uh, I've yet to receive documents I've requested from the State Department. Um, So just a warning to those thinking about making FOIA requests. It may take you a while to get your records, and it could be a risky strategy for data collection, uh, especially if you are a PhD student or if you're on the tenure clock. Um, 
But in the book, I do talk about strategies that I learned to speed up the process and to deal with like the fee waiver denials and the many other obstacles uh, of the FOIA process. I'm so glad um, you talk about this in the book. And here it is such a big part of what you've done, but also kind of useful for everyone to be aware of. Um, so thank you for taking us through that. In a lot of ways, the answer to my next question is kind of, well, you've just told us about it, right? Um, you document in the book that there hasn't been a lot of scholarly attention to this back channel process. And one kind of obvious reason is exactly what you just explained, right? It's really hard to get this data, but we're academics, right? We get difficult data all the time. Uh, we still do research in countries, for example, that don't even want us to physically be there. So that's surely not the whole answer for why there hasn't been a lot of scholarly work on this topic. Yes, that's a great point. Actually, there's um, a lot of data um, that's even more difficult to get, right, especially for folks doing comparative work. Um, but as I uh, mentioned before, the scholarly literature has neglected these interactions as a way for members of Congress to influence policy. And in the book, I identify some reasons for why I think this is. So first, previous work had categorized these interactions between individual legislators and agencies as um, what's known as constituency service or casework. Uh, which that refers to the services that congressional offices provide um, to constituents like expediting a passport renewal or tracking down uh, a late security, social security check, um, not realizing that members of Congress also contact agencies about policy issues. And in the book, I show the breakdown of contacts based on whether they are uh, constituency service or policy related or um, uh, requests for grants or another category and how the patterns of contact differ um, based on the type of contact. But I think another, um, a second way the literature has conceptualized these interactions between Congress and the bureaucracy was as congressional oversight. Um, and the point I make in the book is that congressional oversight is defined as Congress, and this is generally the institutions or organizations of Congress, like congressional committees, um, ensuring that an agency is implementing the law as intended by Congress. And the point that I make in the book is that individual members of Congress are not just using their interactions with agencies to ensure the implementation of law or to ensure legislative intent, but they're using it to carry out their own policy objectives, whether that's consistent with the collective intent of Congress or actually undermining it. Mm. Yeah, no, that, that doesn't actually hold up. Um, so it's good that we have your book now. Um, I'd love to get into, now that we have an understanding of what we're talking about, how we can figure this out, why we need to look into it, we're probably going to get into that last one a bit more later. Um, there's the kind of obvious question of why, right? Congressional members mm -hmm. wouldn't do this if it wasn't useful to them in some sense. So why is going through this back channel, is using the bureaucracy so mu a much more promising venue, a much more like, why are they doing it? Yeah, so it's important to point out that um, what makes a strategy effective is the threat of retaliation. So agencies are very risk averse and they want to avoid angering legislators who could retaliate if the agency is unresponsive. Um, and as I talk about in the book, members of Congress have several ways they can make life very difficult for an agency. Um, so agencies generally want to keep members of Congress happy in order to maintain support in Congress for their budgets and their priorities. 
Um, but members of Congress can do a lot of different things. They, they can drag agency officials in front of committee hearings or demand oversight or investigations. Senators can hold up nominees. So like how Senator Tommy Tuberville has been holding up the Department of Defense nominees recently over the department's abortion policy. Um, and agencies don't always have they don't always have the ability to give members of Congress what they want, especially when they're receiving like conflicting policy requests from within Congress. But they want to avoid uh, angering legislators, especially ones who have the, the most kind of capacity and motivation um, or drive to make life difficult for the agency. Um, but whether and when the bureaucracy is going to be a promising venue depends on a number of things, like who the legislator is. Are they uh, a member of the minority, for instance? Do they share a party affiliation with the White House? Uh, it can also depend on what their policy objective is and how contentious it is. If the president or other powerful lawmakers disagree with the objective, that's going to make it more difficult. Um, it can depend on the agency and how either politicized agency is or how insulated it is from political pressure, um, what the agency's mission is. Uh, and it depends on also what's going on in Congress. If Congress is unable to pass anything, like when the House is without a speaker, for instance, uh, it's pretty clear that the bureaucracy is going to be a more promising venue. Mm. So that, in a lot of ways, I think, to me at least, explained the scale of this, given how many different reasons this might be worthwhile for policymakers to do. Um, but obviously, they're not doing this for everything. So there's some sort of calculation going on here about, okay, I'm a lawmaker, I have multiple options available to me, which one am I going to use? Can you walk us through some of those trade-offs and, I guess, formulas, calculations in some way that lawmakers are using to determine when to choose this back-channel route? Sure. And I should be clear that agencies can't, um, can't guarantee outcomes, right? And the courts can overturn agency action more easily than, um, than legislation. Um, although so far courts have not been using arguments about these interactions between members of Congress and agencies as justifications um, for overturning agency action. Instead, they've actually been... Um, saying that this is a part of a member's, member's uh, job to be advocating on behalf of their constituency. Um, but uh, in terms of like who uses this, so I find that nearly all members of Congress engage in back-channel policymaking to some extent. Um, in my data, which covers the time period from 2005 to 2012, nearly every single member of Congress in my data set contacted one of the departments in my data set at least once to make a policy request during a Congress. And my data set that I use for my quantitative analysis is limited to, to select departments. So if we assume that members of Congress are contacting even just the other dozen departments at levels similar to what I'm finding, that suggests that they are engaging with departments regularly. And that's consistent with what congressional staffers have told me. So one legislative director who had spent a decade on Capitol Hill said his office contacted agencies about policy Every, every week, if not every day. So to be clear, nearly all members of Congress engage in this behavior to some degree. Um, but I do find substantial variation across lawmakers. So while some might only contact a department a couple of times about policy um, during the year, other legislators are contacting a single department or agency um, dozens of times or even more. 
So then what explains this variation? So I set out on this research arguing that members of Congress turn to the bureaucracy as a substitute for legislative action, as a way of evading the obstacles that they face in the legislative process. So one possibility is that the members of Congress who face the most obstacles in the legislative process would have the greatest incentive to pursue agency action. So this would mean that we might observe like the low-ranking freshman legislator who's not on the committee with jurisdiction over the agency seeking out agency policymaking as an alternative to legislative options more so than like the senior committee chair who has more influence over legislating and has these other options, as you say, within the legislative process. The problem is that the power and resources lawmakers have within Congress um, actually aid their capacity to engage and influence agencies. So what I find is that lawmakers who are in a better position to influence policy within Congress are also engaging with agencies more and are also prioritized by agencies. So there's a sort of catch-22 because the lawmakers who may be in the most need of an alternative way of advancing their policy objectives may also be the least capable of taking advantage of bureaucratic discretion. And I think that's one really important implication of my findings is that agency policymaking may actually exacerbate the already unequal power distribution in Congress. Um, so in other words, the rich get richer. Um, and this is partly because really all members of Congress faced obstacles in Congress. Like even the Senate majority leader can't push through whatever he wants. And of course, the presidency uh, plays a critical role as well. So what I find is that members of Congress pursue their policy objectives through federal agencies when they face constraints in the legislative process, but also have the advantage in the executive branch. So for example, I find that senators contact agencies about policy objectives more when they're in the minority in the Senate. Um, so they have the disadvantage in the Senate, but they're co-partisans of the president. So they share party affiliation with the president. Um, and they, they contact agencies then more than, for instance, when they're in the majority in the Senate and White House co-partisans. So in that case, it makes sense for them to devote their resources to the legislative process where they have the advantage. Um, in the House, it is more nuanced. So House members contact agencies more frequently when they're in the minority and White House outpartisans. I should say that that relationship for the House is weaker. But I think one possible reason for this could be that they're really out of options when they're um, they're in the minority and White House outpartisans. They can't depend on the accomplishments of their party leadership in either the House or the White House. Um, but to your point, I also look at another motivation driving members of Congress to the bureaucracy, and that is the relative obscurity of administrative policymaking um, that I argue legislators use to their advantage. So um, for some time, congressional scholars have found that members of Congress act strategically when choosing how to pursue policymaking and choosing their venues, and that they avoid very public ways of doing things when they face cross pressures um, or conflicting pressures. So like when they face a conflict between their party and their constituency. Um, and what I argue is that members of Congress try to use agency policymaking to represent interests that could be costly for them to represent publicly. And I, I test this idea by examining the behavior of members of Congress who face cross pressures on particular policy issues. So for example, Democrats have faced cross pressures when they come from states like Pennsylvania, where fracking has really boosted the economy um, because of the Democratic Party's conflicting position on fracking because of um, 
the party uh, tend to be in favor of environmental regulation. And so they face a conflict when they come from a state where, where fracking has really boosted the local economy. And what I find across two of the three policy areas I examine is that members of Congress contact agencies about policy more frequently when they face cross pressures on an issue. And we, it, this is really important that we don't see that same pattern for very public policymaking activities like bill introductions. In some cases, we actually observe the opposite pattern for bill introductions, that they're sponsoring more bills on issues when they don't face cross pressures. Um, so I think this finding suggests that legislators are using the bureaucracy and agency policymaking as a back channel way of influencing policy when they don't want it to be public. Um, I should be clear, though, that that members of Congress do um, often publicize their interactions with agencies. So, you know, they use their interactions with agencies um, often the same way they use other uh, types of policymaking activities. They do it to take credit for benefits accrued to their constituencies and to um, take public positions on issues. The point is that they're also using the bureaucracy in this really important way that we've been neglecting and that could have implications for representation and um, democratic accountability and, and transparency. No, absolutely. Um, and I do of- obviously want to ask you more about kind of the wider implications. But one thing I want to make sure we're clear on is kind of the other side of the equation or the interaction before we get to the bigger picture. Um, you've spoken a little bit about kind of what some of the things are that agencies uh, consider when responding to these requests. Uh, but I'm wondering if we can get into that in a little bit more detail, how they Is it just about kind of, oh, this person is a powerful person in the Senate, therefore we have to do whatever they say? How do agencies weigh up when they get so many appeals and requests? Sure. So so I find that policy requests from members of Congress who have the greatest capacity, as you say, kind of the greatest power and, and motivation to retaliate against the agency if it's unresponsive, that those are the legislators that agencies prioritize. Um, I refer to this as the retaliation hypothesis. So, for example, um, I find that senators are prioritized over House members, which makes sense given that senators have the confirmation authority and can hold up nominees um, over agency policies they disagree with. Majority party members and members of the committees with jurisdiction um, are prioritized, and that's generally consistent with previous work and this idea that it's these powerful members who are prioritized. Um, I also find, interestingly, that Requests from groups of lawmakers are prioritized, which I think offers actually some optimism that even maybe a low-ranking lawmaker, if they're determined enough and work to get their colleagues on board to appeal to an agency, that the agency pays attention. That's a way for a legislator to get the agency's attention if they get their colleagues on board. Um, So in terms of lawmakers with the greatest motivation to retaliate, I find that White House outpartisans... Uh, and legislators who are likely to have ideological disagreements with the agency are prioritized, which actually differs from findings in the previous literature and like the conventional wisdom that agencies are going to prioritize friends of the administration or like-minded legislators. Um, But I should add that in a somewhat related article that came out in 2019, um, my co-author, Hei Young Yu, who's um, currently an associate professor at Princeton University, Um, She and I use similar data from the Labor Department and present evidence that the agency's decisions are influenced by requests from members of Congress and that the agency was even actually overturning decisions after receiving requests 
from members of Congress. So the, the agency was reversing decisions that it had already made after being asked to by a member of Congress. Um, so based on my work as a whole, I would say that agencies want to try to be responsive really to any legislator if they can, because any legislator can make potentially make life difficult for an agency, but given limited resources and constraints on their ability to satisfy every member of Congress that contacts them, agencies will prioritize lawmakers who have the greatest capacity and motivation to retaliate against um, the agency. Uh, of course, I need to add the caveat that there is going to be variation across agencies and like the types of decisions that they're making. So some agencies, for instance, are more insulated from political pressure. Um, agencies have more discretion or face more constraints on some decisions over others. That is really interesting about the groups of lawmakers. Um, among, I mean, there's many things that are interesting about this and how agencies respond Given these pressures and given, as you said, kind of some of the instances of overturning things and the scale that we've talked about and the fact that it was so hard to find out this information that congressional members were pretty against it, to what extent should we see all of this, this back-channel lawmaking, as nefarious? Yeah, you know, originally I didn't see it as nefarious at all. Um, And I think that was because I was coming coming from Capitol Hill with the perspective of a Hill staffer. And I think that, um, I do think it's reasonable to view this as actually a promising account of representation in Congress, that tenacious legislators are not stymied by obstacles in the legislative process. Like what I said with um, uh, the court, there have been court opinions where they said, well, really, this is legislators' job to be advocating in every possible way for their constituencies. Um But as I talk a lot about in the book, I do think that we should be paying attention to the possibility that individual lawmakers are pressuring agencies, sometimes successfully, to make policy changes that would not pass the statutory threshold in Congress. I think it's wrong to characterize these sorts of actions as as all congressional oversight. That implies that the lawmaker is ensuring the collective intent of Congress. Uh, But a single lawmaker or even a large group of lawmakers shouldn't be assumed to be representing legislative intent. Um, And this might be particularly concerning given my findings about who has most influence in the bureaucratic venue. So there's been concern, um, as I mentioned, from scholars and journalists about the unequal power distribution in Congress. Uh, My findings would suggest that agency policymaking might actually exacerbate the unequal power distribution in Congress, especially if those who have the most influence over how legislation is drafted and how, how what is delegated to agencies, if those same lawmakers have the most influence over um, how agencies act on that legislation um, and that discretion, um, I think that could be concerning. I think there are also potential trade-offs here for transparency and democratic accountability, given that these interactions are not readily visible um, to the public and can be difficult to access. Um, that said, there are democratic theorists like Jane Mansbridge at Harvard and my colleague at um, OSU, Michael Neblo, who are arguing that these types of interactions are important ways of preserving democratic norms within administrative lawmaking. You know, if we accept that agencies are now responsible for the majority of U.S. law and that this is not going to change anytime soon, perhaps we should actually be encouraging these channels of communication between democratically elected representatives and the unelected experts within the bureaucracy. So given then this sort of 
areas for concern, but also maybe areas for optimism. What do you think the outlook is for back-channel policymaking going forward? Uh, so one thing that I that could have, I think, major implications for backdoor lawmaking going forward, but also for agency policymaking just generally, is the current makeup of the Supreme Court. So there have been a series of recent cases that have challenged the role of agencies in policymaking. So, for example, West Virginia versus EPA last year was seen as potentially beginning to roll back uh, what is known as Chevron deference, uh, which refers to the legal doctrine from the 1980s established by the case of Chevron versus um, Natural Resources Defense Council. And it was the Supreme Court's ruling in that case that the courts should defer to agency interpretations of um, statute or ambiguous statutes. So West Virginia versus EPA um, and subsequent cases didn't actually overturn Chevron deference, but there are some upcoming cases that we should be keeping an eye on. Um, If we do observe a strong retreat or reversal of Chevron, that would likely limit agency policymaking generally. um, And it would also likely then limit backdoor lawmaking because members of Congress would have fewer opportunities to influence agency policymaking. Um, But a retreat from Chevron would also present a significant challenge, I think, for Congress generally, because as I mentioned earlier, it doesn't have the capacity to take on the role that agencies have been playing in policymaking. Um, It would limit Congress's ability to delegate to agencies. I think that a rollback of Chevron would also present potentially a challenge for the judiciary system, which I think would face a major increase in its workload. Mm. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I'm really intrigued by that now. Uh, I think there's probably a lot of listeners who are like, oh, I wasn't really paying attention to that case, but now I'm going to keep an (laughs) eye on it. Now I know what to look out for on that front in future. Uh, And in fact, in that vein is my final question. Uh, This book is out. It is available. Is there anything you've mentioned? You've almost hinted at a few things, but is there anything you're working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact topic that you'd like to preview? Yeah, sure. So um, my new research agenda focuses on another strategy that members of Congress use to influence policy outside of the legislative process. So rather than the back-channel policymaking that I focus on in the book, my new focus is on how members of Congress leverage public attention to influence agency policymaking. So for example, uh, when senators publicly pressured the FDA to ban um, flavored e-cigarettes. Um, I'm sure listeners see this in the news every day, actually, whether they realize it or not, that members of Congress will um, uh, kind of urge or pressure agencies to take one action or another um, uh, in different public, using different public media. So this strategy is interesting to me because it doesn't necessarily depend on a lawmaker's power to formally retaliate. And I actually expect that it's a different source of power that makes a legislator more or less effective at using public pressure. And that is their ability to attract public attention and to persuade the public or um, to like mobilize groups. So, for example, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez may not have had much formal power to leverage against an agency when she first got to Congress. But she may have been able to leverage her ability to attract press attention to pressure an agency to shift its behavior. Um, And, uh, of course, like back general policymaking, I should say that this effectiveness or the effectiveness of the strategy 
also likely varies across agencies. So some agencies are more motivated by their public reputations than others. Um, but we are still in the very early stages of working on this project. I should also add that I'm working on this um, with a, another professor, so professor at University of Kentucky, Annalise Russell. Um, she's an expert on congressional communications and I should say has a fantastic book on Twitter use in Congress called Tweeting is Leading. So we're sort of combining our expertise and data sets on this new um, collaborative project. Brilliant. That sounds very exciting. Um, thank you very much for previewing that for us. Another thing to look out for. And of course, while you're working on that, uh, listeners can read the book we've been discussing titled Backdoor Lawmaking, Evading Obstacles in the US Congress, published by Oxford University Press. Melinda, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Miranda. This was really fun.